You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. So let's do a quick, we'll do a quick intro and then we'll do a hot spot and then we'll see where that leads us. What's a hot spot? It's a two person monologue hot spot. Oh, okay. You've done my class a bunch of times. How do you not know what a hot spot is? It's I, practically the backbone. I of thought my you class. were talking about the one where you sing and I was like, I will leave. Never. I would never ask anybody to do that. <laughs> I hot will spot. leave. No, I'll tell you, and we can even record this too. I'll give you my two cents on hot spot. I'll tell you why I don't like it. I'll tell you why I love it. Do you really love it? I love Hotspot. It's so much fun. I'll tell you why as a teaching device I don't like it. Okay. I think I don't think it serves for a for an improv team. It can be great. For a class, like the original purpose of Hotspot was for early level classes to get over their own self-consciousness by putting their attention on helping other people out. So your job was to keep other people out of the hot spot. You jump on the grenade so other people aren't having to risk that embarrassment. And in the process of helping make other people look good, you realize that you can overcome your own inhibitions, et cetera, and tap into this energy. But realistically, I don't think that that's the lesson most early level students draw from it. I'd be surprised if a lot of students drew much of a lesson from it other than it's something that you do. And the longer I do it, the the more I dislike how it draws a very specific line in the sand in terms of uh, uh, age. Oh uh, yeah, like reference and cultural divide. Common reference between yes. people. It, it talking to people, I have found that it has made them feel alienated in classes to not understand like the group's reference level, and it kind of just starts it off on like a weird. You're like subtly communicating this clickish sense to it. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's me rationalizing my dislike of the game, however, simply because I hate playing it and I don't <laughs> know the lyrics to any songs. Yeah, I love it because I think it's really fun to play. Uh, and even when, like, I also don't know a lot of songs or lyrics to songs outside of like a specific niche of like weird pop punk from the mid 2000s, but uh, I still really like it because I'm always able to search for the opportunity to like sneak in with a song that I do know. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. It's hard. I think it's hard to describe why you find something to be instinctively fun, but I really love playing hotspot. I don't think you need to justify why you (laughs) enjoy doing anything. Yeah. It can be worthwhile. And I think as a teacher or as a coach, it's your job to know your purpose behind what you're doing. Oh, yeah. You can't just arbitrarily make people play it. No. Because I I would agree that I think it's, like, pretty useless in terms of making people feel comfortable around each other. Yeah. Uh, because singing is, like, a really self-conscious thing to do. Yes. Um, I think perhaps a big draw of playing Hotspot as, like, a warm-up or an activity is that it takes up a lot of time. Yes. <laughs> Therefore, covers from holes in your lesson plan. Yeah. It's it's a good filler if you need a filler. If you have five minutes at the end of a class, it's a good filler. But generally, I like to avoid hotspot. This, of course, incidentally, is the Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm talking with Eleanor Lewis about hotspot. Hello. Hi, Eleanor. <laughs> I, you know, you know uh, Linda Barry, the cartoonist? Mm-hmm. She apparently starts off all of her cartooning classes, I think just the first day, with the announcement that singing in front of a group of people is the is 
the most vulnerable you can feel. So here I go. And then she sings a song. I also read a book of interviews with Jeff Bridges where he described doing a class with his wife. This sounds equal parts horrible to me. And also, yeah, I get it. And I'd like to have that experience, but that's balanced out nicely by how horrible this sounds. It's, it's a singing class, but it's not about being a good singer. It's about, and I don't know exactly how to explain this, expressing yourself genuinely. So the class, you're assigned a song that you like practice on your own. And then not only do you sing this song out loud to the class, but you also like look your partner directly in the eyes and like sing it to them, you know, as a way to like enhance intimacy and a sense of like genuineness. Yikes. I know it sounds like a fucking nightmare. Oh boy. But it is absolutely true that singing to people is, unless you have a trained voice or really love music, very vulnerable, very scary. I like to avoid hotspot at all costs in classes. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm I'm a pretty weak singer, I think. Like very pretty pretty bad at it, but I really I like hotspot. I did a musical class and I really like that. I don't know. It's it's a it's like a it's just a, a part of my brain that I don't get to use a lot. And I really enjoy flexing that muscle, I think. One, I do not like singing real songs, but I love just singing in shows. Mm-hmm. I love it. Um, just making up a song on the spot or being pimped into singing a song or singing for no reason, I'm always a sucker for it. And I remember Armando giving me shit about that a long time ago because um, I guess he's not as big a fan or was not as big a fan. But I like, I like that when you just burst out and sing and try to do your best in a show, the audience tends to love you for it. You just can do no wrong. And I like what it does to your brain because my brain, which is usually very intensely in the driver's seat, suddenly has to like play catch up with the sounds that are coming out of my mouth. Yeah, you, ca- you, you manage to catch yourself by surprise, which is something that might not happen. Nice. Yeah. If you're just speaking. Yes. There's a couple of other exercises that I've been running a lot recently for that specific purpose of catching yourself by surprise. One is no pauses in scenes, Mm -hmm. which depending on the mood that you're in can be not great or can be really wonderful. Right now I'm in a part of my cycle where it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Just really enjoy doing and seeing people do those. Just keep yourself talking. Another one, and I've been running this a lot recently and have yet to encounter anybody who enjoys doing it, but I enjoy doing it and I like watching people do it, is pure nonsense scenes. You ever visit um, badlipreading.com? Oh, of course. You're just doing that. You're improvising scenes with that idea. So you're not (laughs) speaking. It's not like a gibberish exercise where you're making up a language. You're speaking English to each other. And your purpose is to have a dramatically compelling scene, to have an emotionally engaged scene. But all the dialogue is like... Nonsense. Goldilocks flower hat time. Yes. You want it to make just enough sense that it's not just like a random word generator, but the second you catch yourself actually making a point, mix it up, mm-hmm. change it up. And people hate it because like your brain, you feel your brain getting hot while you're doing it. It's a really exhausting exercise, but some of the shit that comes out of you is so surprising and delightful. And you find, or I have found it's a wonderful way. If I, if I relieve myself of the fear of not making sense, um, I will be much more emotionally committed to a show. Yeah, it sounds like um, the way that I, the way that I improvise when I've been awake for like forty-eight hours, like when I'm that tired. Um, it's 
I can't like uh, form patterns in my brain correctly anymore. Mm-hmm. So I can't uh, I can't like get ahead of myself, and I can't make any type of plan for even the end of the sentence that I'm saying at that time. Uh, so whatever comes out of my mouth is com- is like completely unexpected to me and to every other person, which is uh, really fun. But it's also awful because I'm totally exhausted at that point. I'm a big fan of uh, McNapier's take on doing whatever you can to lower the importance of improvising for yourself. And, and it's a tricky idea because you can misinterpret that and assume that that just means be a careless performer or kind of just like be a jerk. And it, it is not that. It, it's just finding whatever way you have to take your self-consciousness about it away, to yeah. take that inner guard and tightness away and that guard and tightness manifests as a symptom of it being too important to you, of you being too results-oriented, too concerned with the impression that you're going to be making. Mm-hmm. And that makes you fearful. Yeah. Right? And then fearfulness is like very destructive, I think. You become, you become not spontaneous. Mm-hmm. You hold back a lot. You don't really you don't really let yourself respond to what's happening. You have an extra layer of processing before you're, you, you're too guarded. And more important than anything, you never catch yourself by surprise. So, so your improv suffers because you're not really being responsive and spontaneous, but your comedy suffers because you're not surprising yourself. You're just working really hard to do it right. Yeah. That, I think that resonates with me for like the times when I have found improv to not be fun. Uh, those are the times when I've been like on a big kick of thinking, oh, this really matter. This matters a lot to yeah. me, like to my identity. It's important that I do a good job at improv. And then uh, at that point, you're every time you go on stage, you're protecting your personal identity, and that's mm-hmm. like incredibly high stakes. So uh, you can't do anything but feel fear, and then you get squirreled away in that like. Uh, I got to do something safe. I got to protect myself. It's just not as fun. <laughs> no, it's not. And there's a there's um there's a weird like ego thing involved. I'm very big on like ego in improv. The destructive and the creative uh, uh, uses of ego in improv. And I think that like a destructive use of ego, it's not you don't even think of it as a use, but it, it's so important to your own ego that you succeed at this and that you be perceived by fellow improvisers and uh, audience and teachers and peers and whatnot as brilliant that you are basically controlling and manipulating the entire performance. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's, a, there's a second and a half lag between the script you're writing and the action that you're executing. It's just not really being improvised. It's very guarded. And ultimately, all you really get a sense of, it, it, it's like the, the your individual ego has taken over the entire stage. There's no room for anything else to be there. It's just all the perception of like how well you're doing. Yeah, and it's, uh, you're, attempt, you're basically trying to steer the show from outside the show. Yes. From a point in the future after the show has happened. Yes. Uh, you're, you're like playing to the review. Yes. You know, which... That's like, I don't know, that's kind of acceptable if like you're in previews on Broadway and you're trying to like sell tickets, but considering that it's improv and if you're not legitimately connected with the people that you're working with and kind of like ignoring the audience to a certain extent and ignoring the future, then you're kind of, you're 
I mean, you're kind of fucking up <laughs> a little. Well, it's a question of degree because I, it would be disingenuous to say that you're not playing for a laugh. You know, you know in your heart of hearts that you are aiming oh, to sure. hear the sound of people laughing at what you're doing. But it's the difference between, uh, you know, accepting that you want that in the moment and just like, you know, hanging your hat on the peg that says, I am an improviser and I am funny. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm always curious about like that distinction too, because you know, when you're doing it, it's hard to slip yourself. It's hard to catch yourself slipping into it. Yeah. And then suddenly you look around and you're like, how much I care so much. How did this happen? Yeah. This, this took a wrong turn. And now this is more about my ego than it is about, about, getting on with the job at hand. It's more about my ego than it is about being funny, actually, weirdly enough. Mm-hmm. It, it is that thing, it's this guarded thing of you're always setting yourself up to look great and missing the opportunities. Mm, what's a better way of saying this? You're not making, you're not taking the necessary risks that yes. you would need. Yeah, and, and without that risk, there's a great Elaine May quote that's only not really pertinent to what we're talking about, but it's on the top of my mind, so here Excited it is. to hear it. The only safe thing to do right now is to take a risk. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty good quote. Um, here's where I think ego is good, creative ego in improv. I would make the argument that the ego of your character and the comedy of the scene that you're in are inseparable most of the time. I'd make the argument that a good chunk of comedy is based on watching people. It's based on tapping into a streak of sadism in which we enjoy watching other people in trouble. But the key to it is we enjoy watching other people who have gotten themselves into trouble. Mm -hmm. Watching them get themselves in makes it safe for us to now enjoy watching them try to get out of the mess they've made. And the best way to get yourself into trouble is to know where your ego is leading you. So being able to give all of your focus and energy to your character's ego while you're improvising is a pretty safe bet. But that also means that you're going to have to risk looking like a complete schmuck mm-hmm. because the person's ego gone amok turns them into a complete schmuck. It's when your actor's ego is actually what you're protecting, what you're feeding, that you get yourself, I think, into tricky territory. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's also something that you see a lot in uh, stand-up. Like mm-hmm. if you go to open mics, you see a lot of um, you see people telling variations on the same themes of jokes a lot because they're reliable. Um, and I think you know, stand-up is very appealing because it is somebody just like digging a big hole and then like jumping in it because they're just totally by themselves. They signed up to talk to you for fifteen minutes. And they have to be funny, otherwise they have failed. If nobody laughs, they did a bad job. Mm-hmm. Um, but to you know, if you say the same type of joke, you say the same like risk-free material as everybody else. What you've done, you've done like a tiny little shovelful, and then stood in it and been like, "Look, I'm in a big hole," and everyone's like, "I don't care. Mm-hmm. I don't care to watch this." Uh, it's yeah, it's um. It's basically like selling your time out. Mm. You've sold out your time if you do that. There's, um, I'm almost like curious about like how in real life we constantly screw ourselves up doing the same thing too of like 
um, becoming too results oriented and mm. ending, ending up not being, we're too like rigid in our behavior or too protective of ourselves or you know, whatever it is. There's a quote or not a quote, a, uh, um, this idea I came by recently, I guess it's from the school of Alexander technique, which I don't know anything about. And how, to, prob- how to sit how correctly, to sit correctly, how to stand correctly. And it's this idea of the means whereby, which means that, uh, um, like what you're taught. And again, this is out of my butt cause I haven't done this stuff, but what you're taught in Alexander technique is if you're opening a jar of pickles, uh, um, you have the result in mind. You have an image in your mind of an open jar of pickles and you put your attention on getting that result. And in Alexander Technique, you would put your attention on the means whereby you go about opening that jar of pickles. If you're standing up from a chair, you have a picture in mind of already standing and your mind will kind of check out in the process of standing. It's totally automatic. But they'll encourage you focus on the means whereby. So it's a way of detaching yourself from being completely results-oriented but you're not forgetting what result you're going for, right? You're not, mm-hmm. It's not that you're not goal-oriented. You know what your goal is, but you're not so married to the result that you are ignoring the steps that you take to get to that. Right. You know, so it's a way of like simplifying and not caring so much about how you get there, just taking an interest in the steps that you're taking. And there's something kind of similar-ish in improv to me where you're lying to yourself if you say, I have no goal in mind for this show. You definitely do. You want people walking away from that show applauding and laughing at what you're doing. I just don't, you know what I mean? Like unless your purpose is to do like the horror or something, which even then you want people to be horrified. You want an effect. Yeah. You know? You have a goal. You have a goal. Whatever it is. But there's a big difference between having that goal kind of lightly in mind and then tending to the business of each step that takes you there. being right. The business of being funny and letting yourself be spontaneous and letting yourself be silly and letting yourself give over to what you're creating. Yeah, it's a useful contradiction that you have to be able to carry. Yes. What are some other exercises that you like? Oh, man. Um I, uh, one of my favorites, uh, that I've been seeing a lot lately is, um, to do a very serious scene about like a very serious, um, not funny topic. You're not supposed to be funny at all. It's like, um, like you are a doctor and a patient and the doctor is explaining that you have like, uh, like terminal emphysema or something and you just go through the scene and then your coach will stop you and be like, all right, now do that again. But this time you're explaining that uh, this patient's fingernails are made of candy corn. Mm. And you do the exact same scene with the exact same weight, but just some, some nonsense. Um, I think that it is extraordinarily fun to do. Yeah. Uh, they're, and they're fun to watch as well. Um, there's, a, it, there's like a short form equality to it in that you know the roadmap for what the absurd scene is going to be like, and then you have the satisfaction of being like, oh, I bet I bet that this is how it's going to map. But even by the, by itself, the silly scene has this, like, wonderful charm to it of somebody actually, like, engaging and acting, like, really digging in and connecting with their scene partner despite the circumstance, mm-hmm. or maybe even because of the circumstance of, like, uh, you have to be like, oh, you know, you're not getting divorced anymore, you're getting a uh, a large dead fish. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I love it. It's the uh, Leslie Nielsen school of thought. It's the have a completely straight face. Yeah, and airplane do is the, 
one of the best movies. <laughs> I love Airplane. And it only seems to get like funnier with time too. All all of the other parody movies like don't age particularly well, but Airplane Airplane gets funnier and funnier all the time. Airplane is my mom's favorite movie, yeah. which is it's in itself funny because she's this very like highbrow educated uh journalist and her favorite movie is so so stupid. Yeah. I you know so what's the difference between Airplane and like Spy Hard or one of like the latter day ones? What on earth is Spy Hard? Exactly. Yeah, okay. Because there is like, to me, this sort of relates a little bit to the being too results oriented versus kind of tending to the means whereby argument or dichotomy, right? Because if you look at like one of the latter day Leslie Nielsen movies, it's painful how goofy every single thing is. Mm-hmm. It's like so desperately goofy that you're like embarrassed and like and naked gun twenty two and a half like that or that like straddles the fence yeah that that has its moments but like yeah there's definitely like a little too much going on I'm thinking like like Dracula Dead and loving it or like a latter day uh, Mel Brooks movie gotcha even though I'm gonna make a strong case for Mel Brooks in just a second great but like the, the, like those cheap shitty ones that you would find on Comedy Central all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, they turn them out in like two weeks of shooting or whatever it is. There's like a desperation for the goofiness. And what Airplane does so well is it pulls no stops in terms of throwing in as many idiotic ideas as possible. That's part of what's so fun about the movie is like they just tried every fucking thing. But it doesn't have that same like desperate goofy quality to it. If anything, everything in that movie is done like desperately serious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's no scene in Airplane where the point of the scene is the gag in the scene. Yeah. Uh, it's always like uh, the the gag or gags are all incidental to the extremely serious life or death situation. Yes. Uh, I think that's important. I think that's something that in improv we get told a lot of. Like you have to treat your reality seriously, otherwise the comedy just doesn't matter. Yeah. There have to be people here. You know, I wonder if maybe – because airplane was basically the script to zero hour mm-hmm. and then they crammed all the gags into it. Yeah. Pretty much any other parody movie I can think of was like an original script based upon a genre, but a script that was like built around that genre. And I wonder if that isn't it, that the fact that there is a dramatic through line for the whole movie. And mm-hmm. then they just had that as like the skeleton to do whatever they want. I wonder if that doesn't rescue it. Oh, I I think that that's super important. I think I don't, there's like not a lot of comedy movies that I really like. I also, I mean, I like, I haven't seen a lot of movies generally. Like I'm really illiterate when it comes to movies. I've never seen Titanic, but. um, I like that that's the first one. (laughs) When you describe cinematic illiteracy, I've never seen Titanic. I haven't. Everybody's seen it, right? Yeah, but the Titanic, history's not going to look back kindly on Titanic. I've never seen Ghostbusters. Yeah. Uh, What else haven't I seen? I don't know. I haven't seen it, but. I don't like a lot of comedy movies because I don't uh I think that they're like really exhausting to watch because of mm-hmm. the the sort of like sketch like quality of it. It's mm-hmm. like there's a bunch of sketches that kind of are in a row and the end of one sketch relates to the beginning of the next sketch. If you're lucky. Yes. Like I watched The Heat with Melissa McCarthy and yeah. Sandra Bullock, which was <laughs> Yeah, that's um that's a poignant review of The Heat, but I think the individual scenes of it were pretty fun, but like that's my problem you know. with modern movie comedies 
is they're exhaustingly lazy. It, it, Ooh, yeah, lazy. And I'm not the first person to say this, so this is hardly an original thought. I've but, never heard it before. Okay. So we have an amazing, in terms of the quality of comedy acting and comedy writing, uh, we live in as good a time as any for great performers, right? Melissa, I mean, who's going to argue Melissa McCarthy? Right, there's got to be someone. Well, they're wrong. Melissa McCarthy is <laughs> an amazingly funny performer. Yes, but the quality of film comedy directing has gone down so fucking drastically, and everything has just evolved to this thing of we have a really funny people who are well versed in improv. Here's the basic idea of this movie: we'll just get them to improvise a bunch, and using digital, cutting edge digital technology, we'll film everything. And then we'll cut all the funniest stuff together into a scene that ultimately goes nowhere, is pointless, makes no sense, has no motivation, who cares about it? And so the yeah. movies are like exhaustingly, just lazy, lazily done. Contrasted with, let's say, Shaun of the Dead. Have you seen Shaun of the Dead? Oh, yeah. So there's a movie that's really funny that is like exciting and surprising and so well executed. Huge dramatic through line. Huge dramatic through line. Did you and, see um, the third one of that trilogy, The End of the World? Yeah, it didn't leave a big impression on me. I don't yeah, remember it. exactly. I don't think, like I was also really disappointed by it and I think that part of it is that the dramatic through line makes no sense. Yeah. It's, it's very, um, it like hits the beats at the right times but none of them really um, matter yeah. in terms of the like, uh, apocalyptic sci-fi movie that they're trying to spoof. Uh, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, uh, I think it's just not it's risky. It, there's no risk to it. It's well, back to that. You know, the impression it made on me was that it, those movies had already reached a point where there was this kind of like self-referential mythologizing going on. They're mm. very self-conscious about how this hits many of the beats of the earlier two movies and the and their TV show, Spaced. Right. So it felt a little like um, rehashed to me. It felt like leftovers. Right. Like you kind of, you took the first two, shook them up in a bag, dumped out the first half. Yeah. And you kept the last half in a little Ziploc container and you yes. put it in your fridge for the DVD release. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Have you seen Every Frame of Painting? Oh, yes. Fabulous. Great, great YouTube channel about- great. The form of film. Everyone should watch every frame of painting. Watch every video that's on YouTube. They're short. They're between three and ten minutes. Yeah. Mute, Fabulous. Mute this podcast. Watch it now. Come back. <laughs> yeah. In half an hour. Yeah. Fabulous. And the uh, the episode on Simon uh, uh, oh, Pegg. Not Simon Pegg. Edgar Wright. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Simon Pegg. The two of them together. Yeah. It was so great. And so it really points out what a great job Shaun of the Dead in particular does of telling the story and packing jokes in in inventive ways where they're not only doing a joke, but they're also providing you with new information that's moving your understanding of these characters forward. And then it contrasts it with stuff like choose any Melissa McCarthy movie you want where the shots are just lazily thrown in. Here's an establishing shot. She's going to uh, L.A. now. Here's a random generic helicopter shot of L.A. traffic and maybe we'll hear her saying something funny on the voiceover track, and then we cut to her at her new location. Whereas, like, they'll show the way that that same shot of traveling from point A to point B, they will find a way to teach you about the character in that shot mm -hmm. and pack in three jokes as well. So it's so much more rewarding and so much more exciting to watch that stuff. Yeah, I think every frame of painting is the... There's the, the comedy episode makes the argument about how... Uh, 
hiring improvisers to improvise in in film is destructive to modern comedy because it just is like a series of disconnected jokes. Yeah. And what what you get is no through line to anything. Mm -hmm. I went to see the movie The Boss with The Boss when it came out. It was our big thing. Go see The Boss with The Boss. Yep. And I was surprised at how much I laughed at that movie. Mm -hmm. There was some really funny stuff in it. And then it just inexplicably falls apart completely because you realize there's no point to anything. And the movie ends with this like um, samurai sword fight (laughs) pointlessly. And it just feels like they're jamming in all the shit that you need to like get to the field goal. We got to get to the end of this. We got to do the expected movie stuff. But none of it relates. None of it has a purpose. None of it has anything to do with the character's motivation of anything. It's just random tiny bits all thrown together into a larger movie. And it's tiring to watch. Yeah, which is totally, it's it's kind of baffling because improv as improv comes together so often mm-hmm. at the end of a show. Uh, improv as a movie doesn't work, I think. I don't know. I think movie requires design. Mm-hmm. And improv on stage, part of what comes together is the ongoing sense of discovery. Like one of the biggest laughs in every improv show, and it doesn't matter how long you've been improvising, you could be improvising for 25 years and it's still funny, is when we're in a two-person scene and then 10 minutes into it, you realize there's been a third character there the entire time. Yeah, just sitting quietly. Just sitting quietly. It's just been Charlie Woodcraft in the corner reading a book quietly. Yes. That reveal of what is going on that you didn't know always works in improv. And it's this series of revealing new things. T.J. Jagodowski said the closest analog to improv artistically would be radio drama for that exact same reason. I was going to guess the process of developing object permanence. Yeah, possibly so. Yeah, sure. But it's this idea of learning. Your entire environment is slowly coming into focus. Mm -hmm. You're getting the picture and your imagination is supplying all these details. And also the audience is doing the exact same thing that you're doing. Yes. So you're all together in this spirit of creation. When you discover something, they discover it in the exact same moment. The only difference is you pretend that you're not discovering it for the first time. Mm -hmm. They're hip to that. They laugh themselves silly. That's actually one of the biggest things that you have to teach a level one and level two student is stop treating new information like it's new to you. Mm -hmm. That takes some time for people to digest. But once you grasp that basic skill, um, you're like pretty competent to maintain a scene now. That's actually one of the most important skills to learn. Yeah, that's like um, my guess on why yes and exists is because it's to get people to stop protecting themselves from uh, the uncertainty of learning something very new. Yes, Yes, exactly. You, you have to just have it built into your to your comedy genes. Act as if you know this stuff already. Mm-hmm. Pretend that the thing that you're discovering is not a discovery to you. Yeah, it was uh, in a sexy baby rehearsal last night. Christian is he told us like what he wants is to enable us to do uh, things that we think are so delightful and mm-hmm. so funny. Uh, and surprise ourselves to the point that we should be cracking up and just like rolling around, having a great time, and make it look like we're super serious yeah. and like we don't care. Yeah. Uh, and that's like, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's acting. Yeah. Just do acting. Do acting. Yeah. But with the slight tweak of there is, there's a, a, a slight distance in the acting. Mm-hmm. I want to get back to that idea in just a second. Great. Just to complete my thought. Yeah, sorry. No, no. So in a live improv show, it's this series of ongoing discoveries that are happening 
And by the end of the show, you've created a gigantic vocabulary between you and the audience. Everyone is in, it's a gigantic in-joke. It's a language. It's a, a language based on the games, the patterns, and the behaviors of these characters that we've followed for the course of half an hour to an hour. And everyone in that room speaks that same language. So you have a series of things called back and coming together, and people go crazy for it because they understand it. You're speaking to them in this language that you've co-evolved together. Mm -hmm. It works really well. That same thing does not, you can't just then put that in a movie. Because a movie doesn't have that, a movie is not built around the idea of constant revelations and discoveries in this environment. You're never going to get that laugh by realizing that Charlie's been sitting in the background the entire time, unless you deliberately frame your shot to set up the expectation that he's not there. But that means you set up the shot that way. It means design. You knew, yeah. Exactly. You have to plan that stuff out. It has to be really well designed. And movies, this is a great time for TV comedy and, and like short attention span comedy, but movies are really missing the mark because nobody's designing any of them. Mm -hmm. It's all very, very thrown together. I thought Keanu was good. Uh, I didn't, (laughs) but parts of it made me laugh. Yeah. Um, uh, And I'm always thrilled to see Luis Guzman in anything (laughs) ever. Luis Guzman. Good for him. I'm realizing he might be my favorite actor. (laughs) Because if for, I, no, I don't think he's the greatest actor in the world. He does a lot of the same stuff over and over but again. But he's your favorite actor. There are very few people where I instantly feel happy and sit up when I see them walk on a screen. Luis Guzman is one of them. Mm-hmm. I just know whatever he's about to do is going to be good no matter how small it is. Anyway, what, was, what, what did I just say I wanted to come back to? Uh, the idea of uh, doing things that delight you as though they are just casual. Acting, Yes. So I, <laughs> yes, acting. Acting. So yeah, it, so it, it totally it's it's acting, right? Yeah. It, it's committing, knowing. I, I think that a big part of it is tapping into your own taste for kind of naughty behavior. I don't like the word naughty, but what's a better word? Wicked. I don't like that word either. Deviant. Deviant. That that sparkle in the eye. Tapping into that. Tapping into your own inner troublemaker. Yeah, your little your sense of mischief. Your sense of mischief. So you, you're tapping into your sense of mischief. Um. But you are pretending as if this thing, which is giving you enormous glee, you don't care about it at all. You're, it's basically a gigantic sleight of hand to the audience. You're making it look like you're committing to a dramatic premise when, in fact, you are deliberately orienting yourself towards mischief that mm-hmm. you know is going to put that sparkle in your eye. So it is really good acting, but the difference between that and what you would conventionally think of as really good acting is a degree of what Brecht would call the alienation effect. And I read a really great essay that made the argument that Brecht's theories basically are not terribly sustainable in the realm with which he created them. But Brecht's theories of, have you read a lot of Brecht's essays? None. Great. They're impenetrable. And I'm sorry to any theater people listening to this, but they're impenetrable. I'll never apologize to theater people. Brecht wanted to create socially relevant theater that did not have an audience. I getting lost in the hypnotic trance of the story. He wanted the audience critical of the character's behavior in the story. And so in order to create that, like he wanted the audience to see a play and then uh, um, basically go support a political party afterwards. You know what I mean? Like Fine. social relevance. A, whole way, a, a hoot. A hoot. That's exactly what I want from entertainment. Hoot and a half. Hoot and a half. Um, I love the part at the end of The Heat where they talk about uh, – the Pinkertons and yeah. union busting. Yeah. Yeah. 
it, it I motivated a, me. I joined a trade union. Yes. It was great. Yes. I got on the ACLU website right afterwards. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about all that in a second. Yep. Local 99. There you go. Um, uh, so his basic point was you don't want to get lost in this trance of a play. And so he devised what he called his alienation technique, which was a particular way of performing and a particular way of structuring the story that was at every bend making the audience experience a distance between uh, um, the performance that they're watching and their evaluation of that performance. Mm-hmm. So you never really get carried away with it. It's And so the actors were kind of uh, uh, taught to act sort of in quotation marks, not to become the character, but to show us the character. You do it in quotation marks. So a lot of his theory is like, I have to confess, at least to me, impenetrable. And a lot of it feels very like dated to that period of time, just like not terribly relevant to theater. But someone made the argument, I think Janet Coleman made the argument in her book on the Compass Players, that what he did create was a theory of improvisational comedy. Mm -hmm. And the kind of acting we do in improv is actually comes very close to Brecht's alienation effect. Because you're doing very serious things, but it's all in quotation marks. We're never asking the audience to care so much that they're hurt when we get in trouble. In that case, Branson Reese might be the ideal improviser. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. The the worse it gets for Branson, the better it is for all of us. Oh, yes. I'm reminded of a music industry show that ended with Branson, who was playing the sister in the family who was thin as a waif getting carried away by a hurricane and just being blown away and blown behind the window and like (laughs) battered around behind the window repeatedly. It was fabulous. End of thought. Go see the music industry. Very good. Skip go see. Se- go skip see. Sexy baby. No, go see Sexy Baby too. Go see Megawatt. Yeah, please go see Megawatt. We're funny. All right. We're funny. Do you want to? I'm going to leave this option open to you. Do you want to keep on talking about improv, or do you want to play a version of two-person monologue hotspot? It's up to you. I've never given that choice to anybody before. Wow, the power of choice. I feel that this is a good conversation. I'd like to continue talking improv, but I also feel like our fans might want to know a little bit more about what makes Eleanor Lewis tick, and Monologue Hotspot's a good way to accomplish that. But I'm going to leave it up to you, Eleanor. (laughs) Chances are that I'm going to keep talking about improv, even if we do Monologue Hotspot, because I have done so much improv over the last five years. Yeah, possibly true. Yeah. Let's Let's take the risk. Flip that coin. What does that mean? Monologue hotspot? Yes, please. All right. Hey, uh, our producer, Evan Ford Barton. Oh, hey, Evan. you give us a suggestion for a two-person monologue hotspot? Oh, let me explain the rules first. You've done monologue hotspot with me. Yes. It's a two-person version of that. So right. you'll begin with something honest based on whatever the suggestion is, and then at any point I will cut you off when, I'm, when I am inspired to do so, and I'll share something about myself, and then at any point you'll cut me off, and we'll do it for like three minutes. Great. Great. Evan Barton, our producer. What's a what's a suggestion for a two-person monologue hotspot? Moderation. 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 Eleanor Lewis, your suggestion is moderation. Moderation. Um, so uh, when I was in college, uh, this is like so incriminating. I shouldn't say this at all, but I'm going to. Uh, I, I lived in this apartment with uh, Peter Appleby. It's called The apartment is called The Friendship Club, and we had everybody's parties there. Um, and we also lived across the street from the, uh, the campus police department. Uh, it just happened that we were on the third floor of a, a, a building where we were the only residents. So nobody ever called a noise complaint on us. The only time that in like three years of throwing parties almost every weekend, uh, we got called was because, um, 
like uh, Peter kind of went a little overboard and the police came up and um, they asked him, this is like so mean, why am I dragging this out? But they asked him, like, why did you drink so much? And he said, peer pressure. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I grew up, the environment in which I grew up was one in which my mother worked nights. So my mother would get up at like five o'clock in the afternoon and then go to work and not come home until seven o'clock in the morning or somewhere thereabouts. So that meant that she was sleeping throughout the day. I had a younger brother who you've met. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, seven years behind me. So he was a small baby and my dad was usually working during the day. So I grew up in an environment where I internalized a very strong sense of silence. I move silently and my natural uh, um, space is a very, very quiet space. So like I've never, the idea of a noise complaint, even in my own apartment, I've never felt comfortable enough in any environment except an improv classroom to do anything at what you would consider full volume. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've internalized and basically lived my entire life with the volume very low. And it can get extremely low because once you get that in your blood to be super quiet and like tiptoe around and not like bang on the floor or do anything, you never shake that out of your system. Yeah, I grew up. It's like kind of the opposite. My mom is, uh, both of my parents are journalists and my dad uh, became an editor uh, when I was like five. Like I actually, I remember the day that he became the managing editor of Business Week. It was very exciting. But my mom has been a freelance journalist since uh, I guess like probably like 1995. Um, and she has worked from a home office where, wherever we lived. And so even when I was like a little kid and I was spending a lot of time at home, my mom would always be there, um, sort of quasi-available because she'd be actually working. What is success to you? I don't success. Ooh. Like I, I, I draw a blank when I think of like what a successful life is for me. My own like personal definition, my own goals, my own sense of like how my life is meant to blossom. I draw a big old blank when I think of it, and I yeah. constantly am oscillating between maybe I'm drawing that blank because I genuinely don't have it and or maybe I draw that blank because I'm afraid to define it. I think I I realized this recently but um I don't have a good idea of what success for me would look like because I'm under the illusion that um the entire world is going to reach a satisfying narrative conclusion sometime in the next 3 years and then I'll just go to sleep and there will be no more world. Uh-huh. Uh and this is obviously not true. Um but it prevents me from thinking about uh, the future a lot uh, beyond like a year out. It's hard to think about the future right now for a variety of obvious reasons. Oh, yeah. Not the least of which is I believe we've just hit a critical tipping point in the uh, our technical capabilities and our mm-hmm. communication capabilities and the way that we have as a species kind of out- vastly outpaced our uh, um, animal behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, we've reached a kind of tipping point where we are either going to have to somehow mutate and evolve in order to live in the new landscape that we ourselves have created, or we are going to collide with each other. And it very much feels to me like right now we're kind of colliding because both the geographic lines are being redrawn planet-wise and uh, 
um, I do think that there is a kind of like information tipping point that we're hitting where we're kind of confronted with no sense of future. Yeah. I mean, this is not improv related, but I think that oh, it is. <laughs> the, the two most drastic things I think about technology are, um, one, the fact that, uh, uh, automation and intelligent like machine learning technology and, um, advances in like quantum computing and the, the progressive degradation of encryption mean that um, the value of uh, the value and stability of uh, both money and work are going to be less stable and solid in the future mm-hmm. um, and that the idea that you need to justify your existence through work is going to become uh, very maudlin indeed because most people will be basically out of work unless you're doing something that a machine has not yet been able to learn how to do. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that technology uh, truly allows people to connect with each other on a scale that was like totally unimaginable before maybe the 1850s. Um, and it turns out that uh, people are terrible. Well, so. yeah. Pe- well, yes. I, I, I remain an optimist. I prefer to live in an optimistic reality tunnel in which there are more possibilities for our future and more ways to resolve problems. I, I can't let myself live in a pessimistic reality tunnel. Yet, people are awful. And I think that what we're kind of experiencing right now is, yeah, our ability to communicate with each other has basically created a vast nervous system. Um, we are not educated. First, we're loath to acknowledge that we're still monkeys for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, who dress well uh, and have uh, central air and heating, if you're lucky. But two, we're not educated well enough, nor are most of us cognizant enough to recognize that we need to be trained in evaluating information. Mm -hmm. So we have access to nothing but information all the time, nothing but communication all the time. But what we're quickly realizing right now is the monkey brain gets distracted real easy uh, uh, emotional emergency protocols take over rational thinking protocols, and we don't have much of an education about how to actually rationally suss out levels of information. We're not very great at being able to sort out the difference between facts and inferences and different layers of inferences and to even recognize how you justify a fact versus an opinion. It all gets lumped together into this post-truth this is how I feel thing, which usually boils yeah. down to a sense of insecurity and a sense of fear and anger at whoever's threatening that sense of security. Yeah, it's ex- it's extraordinarily emotional. Yes. Uh, it you, The stereotype, I think, of like the internet and technology is that it will make people colder and and less emotional, but I think that that's the, it's the total opposite because mm-hmm. the the quickest type of reaction that we have is an emotional reaction and the pace of life with this level of connectivity is so fast. Mm-hmm. It's the only type of reaction that you have the time to even have. Um, and for that reason, I'm trying to spend a lot less time on Facebook because I can't, I can't like handle the tides of it anymore. Yeah. It's like way too stressful. Having that many emotional reactions for me is really not fun. <laughs> so here's, here's how we relate it back. Here to me is the, the two kind of hopes in terms of artistic reaction to all of this madness that we're facing. And really what we're facing is a a gigantic global monkey that has behavior uh, uh, patterns that are designed for about 100,000, life in the wild about 100,000 years ago, is now wielding 
a massive global brain that we've created for ourselves that's able to talk to itself endlessly. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing the animal freaking out. You know what I mean? I'm not phrasing that well. Here's the two artistic things that are hopeful for me. Number one, science fiction. Because science fiction is always really good at finding (laughs) interesting ways for us to view our problems and see them as engineering problems. It creates a Brechtian alienation effect, a necessary distance between us and and our problems so that we don't emotionally engage, but instead we can kind of take more of a bird's eye view of, all right, what's the problem we face and what are possible solutions? Mm-hmm. Science fiction is one of those. That's why I was so happy that Arrival was pretty good. Oh, yeah. It's nice to see a smart movie. Yeah. Number two, <laughs> comedy. And not, and this is where I'm going to be on like thin ice on this one. All right. I don't believe that our future involves all becoming like weird robot people. Right. No singularity for you. I don't believe it. I, I don't, that does not seem realistic to me. Yeah. But I don't believe that our destiny is to be trapped in the hell that we are currently facing of like, we're just responding to everything as if we only have animal nervous systems and are not the inheritors of quite wonderful jewel-like human nervous systems, even though we're trapped in that hell right now. I believe that there's a halfway ground in which we sublimate those animal instincts and sublimate those emotions, which by the way, give a lot of purpose and beauty to life. Our emotions are very lovely things. Without our emotions, we wouldn't be able to craft things artistically and have meaningful experiences through things like composition, music, uh, color coordination, all the things that make life like beautiful, right? Yes, color coordination. Well, you know what I mean. I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm thinking no. of like a Matisse painting, not though. If you think of someone like Charlie Nicholson, who's a well-coordinated individual, don't you feel just a little bit happier when you see Charlie Nicholson tastefully put together, walk into a room? Yeah. Oh, he's, yeah. he's coordinated in ways that I'm not, and I'm, I feel that I'm a better person for living in his world. Mm-hmm. My point being, I believe that there's a middle ground in which we are able to both experience the deep animal emotions that we have that give life a sense of value and, and meaning, and also find a way to lighten up and detach away so that they don't control all of our behavior, but instead they... Um, enhance our behavior, if you know what I mean by that. Yeah, well, that's that's a very, I think, improv mindset, I think, of like, um, uh, improv gives a performer uh, a space to stop protecting their emotional reaction Mm -hmm. and to just uh, sort of safely... Like safely be vulnerable in a in a way that doesn't necessarily hurt you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that yeah, that's hard. Is in the real world, vulnerability is like it hurts a lot. You're supposed to protect your vulnerabilities, uh, and you you have to like yeah, you do. You have to find a way to balance your animal nature with the world that you live in. I think in improv, it's like you know, just like stop, just be your be your weird contradictory self mm-hmm. right now so that we can see it happen and we can relate to it happening. And learn to tap into that mischievous thing that's going to make you feel like a million bucks. Mm-hmm. But learn to do it in a non-destructive, instead a creative way. Learn the art of sleight of hand. Learn to do that mischievous thing, but to do it in such a way where 
you misdirect people. Learn to be able to commit emotionally, but to also know that this other purpose that you have is really, I'm setting you up to think that this is a big emotional thing, but really, I'm going to push this button over here that's going to be so stupid and so idiotic and get such a good laugh out of everybody. I think it teaches you a way to experience those emotions and also simultaneously lighten up with those emotions. Mm -hmm. Eleanor, I'm going to put my money on the line here. This is my ultimate belief. And maybe this is just me compensating for the anxiety that so many of us are feeling these days. But I believe that comedy and theater and uh, uh, science fiction and all these wonderful things are just like laboratories apart from the real world. They're like little laboratories, little safe spaces in which we are able to experiment and try out ways to rewire our own brain's hardwiring. That's my two cents, Eleanor Lewis. Hmm. I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) I I accept your two cents. yeah. Not on purpose. We don't do it on purpose. We're not getting together in like a laboratory to figure out how to rewire our brains. But that's it's the entire reason that we consume any type of entertainment at all mm-hmm. is to alter the direction that our brain is facing for mm-hmm. an amount of time. Yeah. Um, and to teach it to set up new connections and new pathways or to entertain new connections and new pathways to, 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 yeah. to make your own private reality tunnel a little bit more flexible, a little bit more expansive, well, a little bit more inclusive. Perhaps a reason that um, stereotypically, at least sci-fi fans are more introverted mm-hmm. and and more like uh, I guess like just nerdy. Mm-hmm. Um, they tend to also be interested in like you know academic stuff. Uh, those are the people who are already predisposed to be like, oh, I wonder, I w- I would like to shape my brain differently for a small amount of time mm-hmm. and see how that feels. Uh, is I think another is a reason that I think um, like science fantasy stuff, like all of the comic book movies, like the spate of comic book movies, are a little bit disappointing because uh, it they don't really give you that opportunity very much. I saw 30 minutes of Batman versus Superman the other day. I'm sorry. I wanted to blow my fucking head off. <laughs> A horrible That means shit you, movie. you didn't get to the part where they resolve their problems because no. both of their moms are named Martha. This movie is stupid. <laughs> it's a stupid movie. Uh, you know what? I knew that it was going to be bad because everyone said it was bad, but you know what people failed to tell me about it? There's not a single scene in the whole goddamn movie. Everything stopped <laughs> short of scenes. Yeah. The movie's put together like it's a fucking essay and it's so bleak and miserable and there's no goddamn scenes and it's so fucking repetitive. Literally every other scene is the same as the previous other scene. They just alternate back and forth. What a joke. <laughs> yes, I agree with you. And to actually like take that back for a second to like one reason why I think it's so valuable like when a level one and level two student grasps the idea of act as if this new information is old information to you, um, it not only empowers their comedy considerably, like a lot of the rest of the rules, quote unquote rules of improv fall into place when you grasp that one concept. But before you kind of have that epiphany, what that means is that you're facing new information that's coming at you, refusing to allow that to change the reality with which you are addressing it. Mm -hmm. I'm me and you're giving me new piece of information and I go, Oh really? Wow. And I remain still me. You know what I mean? Like 
Whereas when you get good at improv and you grasp that idea, you receive that new information and you're able to shift your thinking. Okay, I'm not me now. I'm oh, taking yeah. this information. I'm including it in a model of this scene in which I now assume I've had this information the entire time. Now, not only do I have this new information that I'm assimilating into my new perspective, but it's telling me things about who I am and I get to learn retroactively who I've been this entire time. Mm-hmm. So yeah. your brain rewires when you learn to do that trick, I think. Yeah, Um I think it's, that's like a very that's a pleasant feeling yeah. when you when you learn to to do that and you learn to stop being afraid of doing that. Yes, um, I think for me one of like my favorite my favorite improv thing probably is the Friendship Club, mm-hmm. and so much of the improv that we do has this like sort of whimsical science fiction element to it, and I think that a lot of what makes us happy um, is finding out what, like reconciling the two elaborate fantasy worlds that we have in Mm -hmm. our respective minds and then uh, figuring out where we really are. Um, Just sort of like stripping away the layers of it piece by piece and then being like, oh my gosh, this is an insane place that we've found ourselves. How much fun is that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love love that. It's a lot of fun. There's hope yet. Oh, yes. I think we're going to skip Serious scene with pickles? I think I'm going to call that. <laughs> Unless you really want to do a serious scene with pickles. It's okay. We got close to like a political discussion on this one. This leaves me feeling like that's serious enough. So if you're okay, we're going to skip a serious scene with pickles. That's okay. All right. That's fair enough. Plug some shit, Eleanor Lewis. Plug sexy it. baby. Let's talk. Sexy baby. Oh, man. Uh, sexy baby. Sexy baby is a megawatt team featured Wednesday nights at the Magnet Theater. Uh Please go. I, I don't know what time it is, so you better go to all of Megawatt. <laughs> you can always check online. Yes, you can check online, or you could uh, live with courage and just show up and find out what will happen. Good, uh, good call. Yeah. We um, don't bring your dad because in the last sexy baby show we had, Katy Berry chopped a corpse's dick off and shoved it up the guy's butthole. So, you know, be careful, but... <laughs> Please come see our show. So now you know the the uh, you know what you're in for with that. Oh, want, yeah. Let me ask you a question really mm-hmm. quickly. How come you guys can chop a corpse's dick off and shove the dick up the corpse's butt, and that's funny, and other people can do the exact same move? And it's crude and offensive. Um, I think it's because. Uh, we think it's funny. Mm-hmm. Like we truly think that that's an extremely funny thing to do. And even if we don't, we, uh, we're very good at unconditionally supporting each other's insane choices Mm -hmm. because we are all completely insane in very different ways and very willing to support each other's insanity. Mm -hmm. That's pretty good. But yeah, we do get away with some stuff that I think is, uh, not necessarily, uh, correct to aim for. (laughs) Without having seen that show and speaking way out of my league, I'd like to also offer an interpretation on that, just to okay. kind of relate it back to the means whereby and results orientation. Mm-hmm. This is something I'll see in classes sometimes. People will do kind of a gross-out move, and the idea is this will be funny. Katie Berry cutting a guy's dick off and shoving it up his butt I would imagine that in Katie's mind, the doing of that is fun and funny. 
Yeah, I think that she um, she doesn't know what's going to happen until she's like halfway doing through. It. Do- yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the idea of doing like a like shock comedy and improv is like really uh, it's a dicey one because you are asserting status over the audience That's that it. is it's damaging to your relationship with them. That's it. It's it's like you're being bullied by that person. Yeah. They're and, taking control of it and yes. then forcing you to ride their ride. Yes, that's exactly right. And it also is a very safe protected thing because they are determining the outcome of this. They've already determined that you will laugh at this thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I watch Katie play, yeah, you usually do have the feeling of she doesn't know until she's done it. She's just following the thing that is making her feel very happy, which in this case was cutting this guy's dick off and shoving it up his butt. Yep. I want to talk about that for a second because it. <clears throat> there is, uh, I think you've hit on something very interesting. When it is a status thing on someone's part and it's their way to assert control, you see it among stand-up comedians an awful lot, but you see it among improvisers an awful lot too. <clears throat> In improvisers, there will tend to be one of two extreme reasons behind it. One reason is this person is an asshole and a bully and is a jerk and is doing something to legitimately force a gross-out response on people so that they can have control of the situation. I don't meet too many of those people. They'll come to class periodically, but they usually drop out of class pretty quickly when Mm -hmm. you find that that behavior is really not rewarded. The other is someone who feels so cornered and so vulnerable in front of a class full of people who were watching them or an audience full of people who were watching them that they go into kind of animal survival mode. Yeah. Everybody has a different fear reaction. Yes. Yeah. So I like, I, I try to encourage a certain sensitivity sometimes when people fuck up like that mm-hmm. and to recognize that like, if we help them out of their fear, we help them to become not only stronger improvisers, but more flexible people. Because more often than not, that does come from a thing of they feel cornered. They blame the audience for having all the power, and they try to assert control and status by doing something gross out and offensive and kind of shitty. Yeah, there's there's something about like doing improv with a person, which I, f- I feel like it's this sort of. Um, it reminds me of this. Uh, it's like extremely um, bad and fairly racist anime that I used to watch called G Gundam, where. Uh, all of the governments of Earth and the countries now live on colonies outside of the Earth. And the only thing that Earth is used for is this tournament that happens every four years where people drive giant robots, which are stereotypically modeled after a uh, racist conception of the country that they're from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they all fight. And whoever wins gets to be in charge of the Earth for the next four years. <laughs> it's it's totally insane. But the main character and his like old master, whenever they meet, they just fight. Because they can't communicate any way other than through their fists. They can't communicate honestly unless they're doing the thing that they do most naturally. And I think that with improvisers, it's kind of the same. Is like you, you're going to meet somebody and then you're going to uh, immediately see them at their most vulnerable and they're going to show you their fearful reaction. And you're going to learn so much of them just in those moments. Like particularly if you do like a mixer scene with somebody mm-hmm. and you're both like scared and nervous, you're going to show what your reaction is to being exposed. And then you're going to show how you act when you're trying to take care of somebody else. Uh, it's like, it's I don't, almost like too intimate, I think. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it, it does remind me of that like extremely stupid TV show. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, that's, a, that's a good way of putting it. 
Anyway, please see Sexy Baby. Wednesday nights at the Magna Theater. <laughs> yes. Uh, please also come to The Mixer on Thursdays uh, at 7 p.m., hosted by myself and Peter Appleby, The Friendship Club. Uh, you'll love it. You'll love it. You'll have fun. You'll come do a scene, maybe two. It's a wonderful opportunity to practice taking care of other people. I, can we talk about that for one second? Yes, please. We have a minute to talk, right? I want to talk about that earlier. Yeah. Taking care of other people versus being selfish. And I, now I'll give you my take on it, but I'm curious to hear your take on it too. Mm-hmm. Anyone who's done my level two class, level three class, will probably have experienced a very supportive environment that's about feeling safe and well taken care of and will probably hear me talk a lot about being good to each other. Yeah, you even, uh, when I was in your level two class, you told us all your phone number, but then you told us never ever to call you. Please don't. Yeah, you're saved in my phone as Lewis Kornfeld, and then in all caps, do not call. I appreciate you taking that instruction to heart. Yeah. Thanks. But yeah, you I offered hate. to take care of us, and in return, we promise not to make you do it. That's that's the lubrication that, that, that uh, helps the gears of society run yes. smoothly. If you were to, if I'm coaching a group that you're in, you're probably going to get another side of it where I'm encouraging aggressiveness and selfishness. And, you know, there's a kind of spectrum and a balance between uh, um, practicing the art of recognizing when someone has needs and how to help them with those needs. And sometimes those needs are you look across the stage, you're in a mixer scene, and you see nothing but dead fear in someone's eyes. Mm-hmm. And so you realize I have one function on this stage right now, and that is to make you feel well taken care of. That doesn't mean I do a bunch of stunny, funny stuff around you. It means I treat you in a way that makes you feel like this is not a life or death situation. And I treat you in a way that makes it feel like everything that you're doing is just fine. Mm-hmm. You are doing great. Then there's elsewhere on the spectrum where you find that you can be so generous and so kind that you use kindness and thoughtfulness as an excuse to not get on with the business of being funny. Mm-hmm. Tapping into that mischief that we're talking about, that surprising place where you are genuinely improvising. You don't know what's going to come out of your mouth. You're cutting the corpse's dick off, shoving it up his butt. Yeah, it's a little bit like uh, you get, you can get into like ruts basically mm-hmm. of, of being like, oh, my function is to take care of this other person. But people perform at different levels in different situations mm-hmm. and it's not appropriate. It wouldn't be appropriate on Sexy Baby for me to treat anybody on that team as though they need to be taken care of yeah. and to be polite to them in any way because yeah. that's not what they want and it's not what will help them. Yeah. What they need is for me to intentionally make make it harder for them. They want to have pushback and they want to have like, they want to have everybody demand that they're paying attention and working hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be like, oh, um, yes, and we're at the store it would be uh, frustrating yes. and upsetting. Where So some people will watch your show and they will decide, oh, that's what I'm going to imitate then, mm-hmm. which is a huge mistake. Because if you go to do a mixer and that's what you imitate, that's going to be a problem. Yeah, you know... Just as in life, you can't just do the same thing all the time. Mm-hmm. You have to be sensitive to the situation that you're in. That's another reason why I think improv is such a gorgeous thing. And another reason why I think learning that skill of just accepting new information as if you knew it already is so central to it is because part of what you practice, nothing drives me quite so crazy as being in a class and having someone in the class constantly, no matter how well things go, 
they constantly raise their hand to ask about the nine situations they can think of where it wouldn't go that well, mm. or what about this situation, or what about that situation. One of the things that's so delightful about improv is that you learn a certain number of useful skills to basically throw yourself in a completely unique situation where you have no idea which of those skills you're going to be required to use. Mm -hmm. The only way to figure it out is to pay close attention to the other people that are on stage with you and recognize, okay, it's time for me to be real selfish and mischievous. It's time for me to rein it in and really yes and. It's time for me to not be funny right now. I would go I would go even farther than that. I would say that um, every skill that you learn in a class is uh, it's devised to take care of a particular type of common scenario where you're likely to be afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a the more you do improv in particular and like with more dynamic and creative people, um, the more you're gonna find situations where those skills no longer specifically apply. Um, so it's not just that you're learning these skills and you're learning how to apply them situationally. It's, it's learning how to just be in the situation that you're in and deal with it, whether, whether you do or do not have a preset skill. It, like, honestly, it reminds me a lot of, um, like, I wrestled in high school, and it reminds me of, like, wrestling matches where you drill these moves over and over again, get them in your muscle memory, but a lot of the time you're kind of just, like, trying to pull shit out of your ass until you can just be in a situation where you're not flailing and dying anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't, you're, like, you're going to use those skills that you drilled, but ultimately you have to be present and flexible and able to navigate the situation that you're in as opposed to a situation which is similar to the one you're in, which you drilled for specifically. All right, I've changed my mind. Let's have you do a very serious scene. Great. Uh, is that a punishment? Am I being punished? No, it's a reward. No, no, Evan, you can stay exactly where you are. I have another different idea. Oh, great. Here's the situation for this scene, Eleanor mm-hmm. Lewis. It's your your wedding day. You are going to be marrying a jar oh, of pickles. Yes, finally. You're not supposed to see the jar of pickles. There's a knock on your door. You turn around. It's not a jar of pickles. It's this bottle of um, Nestle Pure Water. You really shouldn't be drinking Nestle Water. They're an evil corporation. They, they really are. They don't think that water is a human right. They don't think it's a human right. They think it's a privilege that you get to drink water. Fuck Nestle. Do everything that you can. Look up. I'm going to stop drinking Nestle Water. Look up Look up Nestle and everything that they own. You heard it from here, guys. Yeah. Let's take action. This but is this is your Brechtian uh This is your uh, alienation moment. Yes, we are alienating you so that you will join an anti-Nestle movement. <laughs> Perfect. The local 99. Perfect. But since we already have the bottle of water here, we're going to use it. Wonderful. So you turn around. This is the bottle of water is uh, the mother of the... No, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> it's the best friend of the jar of pickles. Come okay. to tell you that the jar of pickles yes. is not showing up to the wedding. The jar of pickles is calling it off. And this is your this is your moment of confrontation with the jar of pickles best friend. Eleanor Lewis, take it away. Um, uh, just, a, just a second. Um, hey. Hey, Nestle Pure Life water bottle. Um, uh, yeah, come uh, come in. Um, we have like a bunch of sandwiches left over. If you want, if you want a sandwich, I don't know if you ate yet, but it's been like a long day. I think it's been a pretty long day for all of us so far. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, this is a chair. I'll sit in it. Okay. What? 
Let's see. I'm going to go ahead and say it. This is not only our first very serious scene opposite a bottle of, of, uh, of evil water, but uh, this is our best serious scene to date. Oh, boy. That pause, that was just spot on. So that's what you would do. You would listen. I was pretending like the bottle was speaking to me. Exactly mm-hmm. right. You say you listened. Even when there was nothing to listen to, you created something to listen to by the very act of listening. Magic, baby. Eleanor Lewis, folks. Is there anything else you want to plug? Um, uh, not, I don't know. There's a, a show I'm directing called Hero, but it is going up in two days, and therefore... This podcast will air long, long after it has already happened, but it will probably happen again in the future. Yeah, two days from now for us is probably 12 days in the past for you listening to this right now. Yes, so unless you are a time traveler, um, actually don't do that. Use your fucking time machine for something better. Um, But yeah, it's a really fun show and I'm really excited about it. It's about uh, deconstructing one superhero played by eight different uh, actors. They're all playing the same individual, or they all have the same power, or they're all different aspects of the same individual. They're all different aspects of the same superhero in the same way that Batman has been. You know, there's Frank Miller Batman, there's 1960s Batman, Christopher Nolan Batman. Everybody gets a take, their own chance to carve out a little identity for this hero. You know, there's a sex scene in Batman versus Superman. Clark Kent gets in a bathtub with Lois Lane. Because they live together. I didn't see the Superman, the Man of Steel movie, but apparently Clark Kent and Lois Lane live together and she knows about Superman. And uh, they're very happy together. That's nice. Yeah, it's great. Kind of defeats the uh, defeats the way that one is apt to identify with Superman, right? Now kind of makes Superman just a total fucking fuck you asshole. It's oh, everything like, in your life is perfect. When you reread Harry Potter yourself. and you realize he's just a jock. Yeah, you fucking pricks. How does Zack Snyder... Oh, forget it. Forget it. <laughs> Eleanor Lewis, everybody. Thank you for talking. Lewis Cornfeld, everybody. Ah. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Thank you to Eleanor. Thank you to our producer slash engineer, Evan Ford Barden. Thank you to our executive producer, Edward Herbstman. And thank you to all of you good, kind, fine, decent people for listening to this podcast. Hey, do us a favor. Do yourself a favor. Go on to iTunes. Give us a five-star rating, a little shout out there. Tell your friends this is the place to hear interesting conversations about everything. You want to hear a conversation? You want a topic for a conversation? Well, tweet that topic to us on our Twitter handle. That's Magnet Theater Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Is that true? Well, you can tweet suggestions to us for Monologue Hotspot or for a very serious scene. But if there's something... Students listening to this, if you've made it this far, if there's stuff that we're not talking about here, you're really curious about like, geez, I'm at a loss about how to initiate. I'd love to hear how Eleanor Lewis initiates scenes. Tweet that shit at us. I will ask that question and then you will get the answer that you want. Maybe not the answer that you're looking for. Maybe not the answer that you're prepared to hear. But you know what? Life is a journey, okay? Thanks for listening, folks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. 
Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.